Hello and welcome to the RBC Ross Trevor Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community, to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoyed this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. Thank you, Emily and the team for leading us in worship this morning. I, I feel like uh, the quote that Dan shared on launch day, and I can't remember it entirely, and it, I think it was from John Maxwell, where it said, we have all been educated beyond our obedience. feels like you're going to get three sermons today, one in worship, one in communion, and one in the sermon spot. Um, so maybe... Just maybe God is trying to say something and give us a range of opportunities to hear from him and respond not with deeper understanding, but with obedience. After all, that's what he desires from us. Now we're in this series, we kicked it off last week, uh, People Like Us. Now, one of the things we were going to do every week during this series is introduce someone to you and interview them and let you know uh, a little bit of their life. You got a glimpse into Bella's life during the baptism last week, and uh, we were going to interview someone this morning, except that they've come down with COVID. So stay tuned. It is still our plan to do this over coming weeks, and just a a good opportunity um, for us to ask three questions of people. Who are you? And what's your connection with RBC? When did Jesus become real to you? And how are you encountering God today? They're three questions that you can take into your conversations as you meet people as well. Learn what God is up to in our midst and pay attention to the stories of others. So, Over the coming weeks, through to Easter Sunday, we're going to look at this story uh, about people like us. The story, the accounts of how people met Jesus. Accounts of encounters, if you like. And we're doing it all through Luke's Gospel. Time to consider how encounters with Jesus led to change, led to transformation in lives. And these encounters are with all kinds of people, with all kinds of different backgrounds and contexts and experiences. They are people just like us. No, they're not 21st century Westerners, but they are human beings. Image bearers of God, just like you and me. It's fascinating to think that Luke, of all the writers in the New Testament, didn't just write his own account. If you look at the beginning, it becomes clear he actually set about researching this. He thoroughly investigated. He collected personal accounts of various individuals and eyewitnesses. And it becomes a narrative of Jesus' life and ministry that's compiled from those who experienced him. From first-hand experience. 
Right from the beginning of the book, Luke takes time to set the scene, to describe the world in which Jesus was born. He talks about people and places. He talks about power and privilege. He talks about prejudices and politics. And his common, consistent theme is about the imminent presence of the kingdom of God. It's in this setting that Jesus declares himself and his ministry as a fulfillment of a promise from centuries before uh, that came through the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus says in Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Each of these encounters we're going to look at are with people just like you and just like me. Who we are, people like who we are now, people like who we have been in the past, people who know Jesus, people who need to know Jesus, people who need the church to herald the good news of Jesus. And in these encounters, we see a glimmer of the dream that Jesus expressed in his declaration. So, let's dive in. Folks, most people in our society today think it's okay to be religious as long as you don't take things too seriously. They treat faith and religion as a kind of hobby. And we've become even more, uh, I guess, wary of people who take religion seriously because of the fanaticism we've seen and uh, the extremism we've seen in various forms. So society's happy if you treat your faith as a kind of hobby. Some are into stamps, some are into model trains, some are into people like Jesus, you know. As long as it stays in your own private space, most people will accept it. But when someone starts taking their faith seriously, that's when those around us can get worried. When people to start, let their faith influence their decisions and their priorities. When they make decisions to do or not to do, to prioritise or not to prioritise. When they make decisions uh, and give opinions based on that faith, all of a sudden society generally gets nervous. Yet these kinds of changes, these kinds of uh, life transformations with what we believe shapes us has to take place if we take what we believe seriously. A genuine encounter with Jesus will always lead to change. And we see it in the people like us, ordinary human beings. And it's often not those people we expect to see it in. Hmm. That's an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? Not who I would expect. 
it immediately, upon reflection, means two things. Firstly, somehow I've set up a set of criteria around who I should expect. And secondly, according to those criteria, I'm now exercising a prejudice against some that I don't expect. It's interesting, isn't it? We all do it. You know, you, you see a radio announcer for the first time and you say, his voice doesn't fit his face. Where does that come from? It comes from us painting a picture of someone and then that someone not meeting that picture. This subconscious kind of thing is the beginning of prejudice. And we need to pay special attention to it. It's nothing new. Prejudice and uh, um, the idea of who to expect and who to exclude and who to include is nothing new. It's been around for centuries. probably been around since a uh, certain couple in a garden uh, sort of parted ways with God. And it's all through the gospel accounts too. So today we're going to have a plunge into Luke chapter 7. If you've got your scriptures with you on a phone or on a hard copy, you might want to look it up. In particular, we're just going to get a couple of uh, encounters here. And there's a fair bit of text. But the encounters speak for themselves. So firstly, right from the beginning of chapter 7, let's read these words. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, all this is chapter 6, by the way. When he'd finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. And there, a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus, and he sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. This man, they said, deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the centurion's house when the centurion sent friends out to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man of authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, I love this bit. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. So he turns from the friends and he turns to the crowd. And he says, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house. And guess what? 
they found the servant well. It's an amazing encounter. Moving down, we come to the second of our encounters for this morning. Verse 36. And in fact, if you read the context and the wider scripture here, uh, he could be now in the town of Nen. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. When, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet as he claims to be, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman he is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him. He answered the man's inner voice. Simon, I have something to tell you, Jesus said. Tell me, teacher, he replied. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, a denarii is about the equivalence of a day's wage for a labourer. So 500 days and 50 days, they're both significant debts. But clearly one is much bigger, roughly 10 times bigger. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both men. Now, which one of them would love him more? Simon replied, a little cautiously, I sense, I suppose the one with the bigger debt forgiven? You judge correctly, says Jesus. Then he turns towards the woman but notice who he speaks to, and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, in other words, in light of what she has done, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Ouch. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, 
your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Two very different encounters. Let's look at a bit of the contrast. One with a woman and quite intimate. The other with a man who Jesus does not even meet. One a Jew, the other not. In fact, a Gentile. One in a privileged space, a Pharisee's house. The other on the streets. One in an extravagant act of worship. The other a simple declaration of authority. One openly critiqued. The other apparently not. And yet, for their differences, there is a significant common theme in these two encounters. You see, they both centre around people who were ordinarily excluded from society and religious life. The centurion was a non-Jew. He was a representative of the occupying forces. He was there in Israel as a part of the, con uh, the conquering rule of the Roman Empire. He would have been wealthy and he carried significant privilege and power, but he was not a part of the Jewish community or the religious life. He was excluded. The woman, on the other hand, was excluded for other reasons. She was a woman in a patriarchal, a heavenly, heavily patriarchal society. And as a woman, she did not belong at the table of a Pharisee sitting at the feet of a teacher. She should have been unseen. Oh, she was a Jew, so she had that going for her, but she had a reputation, and not the kind of reputation you wanted to be proud of. A reputation of having lived a sinful life. Various translations have picked this up as of bad character or even the town harlot. Jesus, by the norms of the day, shouldn't have been mixing and engaging with either of these two people, the centurion or the woman in the Pharisee's home. One was a Gentile and Jews did not mix with Gentiles socially or religiously. The other was a woman, a shameful sinner who had no place at the table of religious leaders. But he engages with both of them fully and significantly. These two encounters demonstrate that there are none who are excluded by Jesus. All are welcome. Both of these people are unnamed in Luke. They are ordinary human beings. Ordinary people just like you and me. The other similarity is that both of them are commended for their faith. At the heart of the encounter with the centurion is actually not the healing of the servant. I mean, the story is important because uh, if he hadn't been sealed, it wouldn't have healed. It wouldn't have been a story. But what matters most is actually the centurion's faith. 
Jesus says, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. It, he's saying even amongst the people, the chosen people of God, and you're a Gentile, even amongst the God's people, I have not found such faith. Far from excluded from the kingdom of God, this Gentile centurion is held up as a great example of faith. Tom Wright in his commentary expresses it like this. This is one of those few places where Jesus is surprised. And the reason is the sheer quality of the man's faith. This faith isn't an abstract belief about God or the learning of dogma. It is the simple, clear belief that when Jesus commands that something be done, it will be done. I love that bit there. This is not an abstract belief or a learning. Back to that education piece. Here is faith that holds to this very simple but profound reality, what Jesus said will or is to be done, will be done. Faith is also at the heart of the Pharisees, the encounter in the Pharisee's house. The woman's experience of forgiveness through faith demonstratively overflows in extravagant worship. It's as though this woman gets into a zone where she has no idea what else is going on. She is there before her Lord and she is consumed by the moment. And Jesus reclines there at the table, probably on an elbow on his side, and he's stuck between two things. This, uh, how would you say, outrageous adoration of a woman in a Pharisee's house. Uh, if you've ever thought of a socially awkward moment, this would have been one. But equally is the outrageous rudeness of the host who invited him and then completely ignored him, with all, missing all the normal, hospitable uh, gestures of hospitality when a guest comes to your home. The woman, uh, it, it, it seems strange to us, doesn't it? You know, we invite someone round for lunch and a stranger from the neighbourhood wanders in. You know. It's not strange that people who were not specific guests were in the room. This is the, a far more open uh, way of expressing hospitality than we would have in our Western society. So don't get hung up on that nuance. Uh, people would have been standing around the edges wanting to listen to this conversation. Here is a prophet, a teacher, uh, who has been invited to the Pharisee's home. People would want to know what is going on in this space? And listen, but it would have been men, not women. This is some, one of the beauties of this story, is the corrective 
to the gender uh, stereotyping and the oppression of women. The scriptures speak time and time again to this issue. It raises women in the society of the day incredibly. And the woman comes in. I'd love to use her name, but we don't know it. And it seems like she's come prepared. She's brought a little jar with her. Obviously with the intent of anointing Jesus. But as she steps forward, it's as though the reality of who she's with and of what it's meant to her overtakes her. And she weeps uncontrollably. And she makes a mess with her tears. They're dripping on Jesus' feet. So she lets down her hair and uses her hair to dry his feet. The onlookers would have been thinking, there you go. That's the kind of woman she is. No decent woman would ever let down her hair in public. It was breaking another social moray. And she dries his feet, kissing them all the time. This is, this is extravagant behaviour, isn't it? Extravagant behaviour. And then finally, she gets to doing what she probably was there to do in the first place and anoints his feet with the oil. And the Pharisee, I love it, the Pharisee thinks he's caught Jesus out. You know, you're going around proclaiming something about yourself, but here in the most simple moment of, uh, you've got no idea who this woman is. So you're clearly not a prophet. That's what he's thinking. It's an internal dialogue. And Jesus just unravels that wonderfully, doesn't he? He doesn't say anything except, oh, I've got something to say to you. <laughs> and in unpacking that, shows that he knows exactly who this woman is. Not who she has been, but who she has become. Jesus says, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. You don't have that kind of response, that kind of extravagant act of worship unless the person before you means something and you've experienced something. And like the centurion, she is commended for her faith. Simply, your faith has saved you, says Jesus. These are two amazing, life-transforming, witnessed, researched and recorded encounters with Jesus. And these two encounters powerfully demonstrate that none is excluded. If a Gentile is not excluded, if a female sinner harlot of the town is not excluded, then nobody is excluded. The whole spectrum is covered. The good news of the coming of the kingdom of God is for all. And everyone, everywhere, can experience such life transformation. So what about you and I? I think there's perhaps two big lessons here. The first is, 
what I've just said. Everyone is included. So we are called to share the good news of Jesus with everyone. Everyone in our circles. Not to allow our prejudices and our expectations to say, oh no, I wouldn't share it with them because they wouldn't be interested. Or I wouldn't share it with them. They're so far from God. There's no way. Or I wouldn't share it with them because I've only just met them. But everyone in our circles, not just some, our social circles, our school settings that drop off and pick up or in the classroom, sporting connections, neighborhood, family, work colleagues, young, young mum groups, seniors groups, it doesn't matter where you are. We mustn't allow our prejudices to stop us from sharing. And secondly, the nature of the kingdom of God demands the dismantling of our prejudices. We all have them. Don't pretend you don't. But the kingdom of God demands the dismantling of them. Bill Hybels, the American pastor, coined the phrase, you have never locked eyes with someone who doesn't matter to God. I remember sitting under his teaching and uh, that phrase being used and being challenged when you wander across to the shops and you see all kinds of people, don't you? People like us, people different to us, people of different colour, people who dress differently, people of different social standing, people in different relationships, people who are uh, in a good place, people who are in a bad place. Whenever you look at someone, they matter to God. Doesn't matter what grief they give you, doesn't matter what attitude they exude, doesn't matter how interested they are or are not. If you look at their face and look at the eyes, allow God's Spirit to remind you that they too are an image bearer of the Creator and they matter. Immensely. So what do we do about this? I think there's two questions for us to reflect on as we finish today. The first is, who are you being called to share with? I want you to pause. Name someone in your mind name someone who is God in this moment saying I want you to speak the name of Jesus pray God would give you the courage to take the opportunity to do that Perhaps in some ways the tougher question, what are you being shown about your prejudices? If we're talking about the excluded, the people we're less likely to go to, the people we are dismissive of, has God shown you something 
about your own prejudices today? Will you stand? And we're going to pray together. Father, as we stand before you this morning, we stand as a people who sang a line that proclaimed that there is no guilt in life and no fear in death because of your power at work in us. Father, we've seen that in a centurion and a woman, a Jewish woman, who showed no fear and had been set free from guilt. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, to be bold. Help our lives to be changed and transformed and shaped by the truth of our encounter with you. And this morning, I'm conscious in a room of this size, there may well be here or online folk who are yet to encounter you. So God, I pray you would open their eyes. Give them the faith to receive all that you have for them as well. And may faithful followers of Jesus in their lives share with them, show them, bear witness to them and Lord we pray for courage to grab those opportunities you give us and even this week may we dare to pray each day Lord show me who I might in some way in act and in word point people to you and your goodness and Lord change us on the inside that these things would come as a sense of uh, being compelled by the, our own experience of your grace and mercy. And transform us too, that we would not restrict who it is that we engage with. Dismantle our prejudices, God, and help us to see that everyone that we meet matters to you. Lord, thank you again for your scriptures. Thanks for the presence of your Holy Spirit. And as Esther prayed at the beginning of the service, Lord, may each of us have had some kind of moment where your nearness, your your Spirit's voice, your, your encounter with us has been significant today. Not by my words, not by the songs, not by anything anyone has done, but by your grace alone. So we bless you, we worship you, and we continue to praise you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through the Hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.